from WBEZ Chicago and PRX, this is Sound Opinions. I'm Jim DeRogatis. And I'm Greg Cott. This week, we're going to pay tribute to the late soul legend Aretha Franklin. From her start at the New Bethel Baptist Church in Detroit to the top of the secular charts, we'll explore the life, legacy, and music of Aretha. We'll also dig into the best-selling album of Aretha Franklin's career, Amazing Grace. That's all coming up on Sound Opinions. You're listening to Sound Opinions, and today we're remembering the life and music of Aretha Franklin. of soul, Jim, uh, dead at the age of 76, uh, a, a huge loss for, for the world. Uh, one of the greatest singers of all time. It needs, you know, nobody needs to be told that. I mean, no. the, the numbers speak for themselves. 77 top 100 songs, 21 number one R&B hits, 18 Grammy Awards, first female artist inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 1987. Uh, but it's more than just a, a numbers game with Aretha, the hits. Uh, the great gospel critic Anthony Heilbutt said that uh, her role as a pivotal figure in the way women and African Americans were perceived in popular culture was so important. You know, he said that you could say you could trace the history of Black America into pre and post Aretha. I think that's absolutely. You know, I think any critic forced to say the most significant voices in popular music in the last century. I think we could debate for the men. Maybe Tony Bennett, I'd go with Frank Sinatra, but there's no debate about Aretha is the voice. Yes, I mean, the influence is huge. I mean, every singer post Aretha has been influenced by her. There's no singer that you could name, male and female really, that hasn't been touched by that voice and been informed by it. Whitney Houston, Adele, Jennifer Hudson, Fantasia. I mean, these singers have all been uh, hugely influenced by her. You know, it's interesting. She grew up in a ho- in the household of one of the most uh, famous preachers in 20th century America, the Reverend Franklin. Reverend C.L. Franklin. <laughs> her mentors as a child were great gospel singers: Mahalia Jackson, Clara Ward, Albertina Walker. These were regular visitors to the Franklin household because of by. the reverend's stature in the, in, the, in the business. Along with the Reverend Martin Luther King and guys like Sam Cooke. Incredible. She was, uh, she was born in uh, Memphis, Tennessee. The family moved to Buffalo, New York, and then settled in Detroit, which was basically where she spent her childhood. Yeah, age five. You mentioned New Bethel Baptist Church. That was her, her uh, father's uh, church. Uh, she became a performer there when she was in her teens and a star performer. They would sit Aretha down at the piano and she would belt. And by the time she was 14, she was already recording uh, some timeless music. Uh, you know, she was, she was performing these classic 
gospel hymns. There's a fountain filled with blood. Mm-hmm. There's a, a recording of Aretha performing that song at age 14, and it doesn't sound like any 14-year-old I've ever heard. No. She was on the gospel circuit with her father. This is how it would work. The Reverend C.L. Franklin was the headliner. And along on these, on these gospel caravans that were touring through the South, uh, you know, uh, performers like his daughter, Aretha Franklin, would be the warm-up acts. Yep. And, and they would cut their teeth performing for these congregations all across the South as a teenager. So that's where she learned how to, how to sing in front of an audience, how to move a crowd. You know, that spirit feel that, yeah. that they talk about in gospel music. Uh, you know, I think we got to put C.L. Franklin in some perspective, Greg. He was, uh, you know, today we have these televangelist mega churches mm-hmm. where they're superstars, the preachers. And he was like that for his era. He also impregnated a 12-year-old parishioner and, and was a philanderer. Aretha's mom left him, and, and um, I think she had an extraordinarily difficult upbringing yeah. despite this fame and fortune. Uh, you know, she became a mother at age 12. She dropped out of high school as a sophomore. She was married twice. Uh, neither lasted very long. Both ended in divorce. There was, there was a, a domestic abuse in the first marriage. Uh, she suffered from alcoholism. Uh, You know, Jerry Wexler, we'll talk about his role in the Atlantic years, said, I always thought of Aretha as Our Lady of Mysterious Sorrows. Mm -hmm. Uh, Luminous eyes covering inexplicable pain. Her depressions could be deep as the dark sea. When she turned to music, learning to play piano by ear, right? You know, it was as catharsis, it was as transcendence. Mm -hmm. My life has problems. All of ours do. This music is my escape. Yeah, there was a lot of pain poured into that music, uh, without a doubt. You can feel the anguish in her voice, the sadness, but also the ecstasy and the celebratory feel of being able to have this outlet and this gift. And she knew she had a gift. You know, her yeah. grandmother was basically raising her at home because her father was on the road on the so road. much when Aretha wasn't on the road with him. Uh, by the time she was 18, she says, you know, I'm out of here. I, yeah. I want to leave. She went to New York with her father's blessing with the idea of forging a career in music. And at that point, I think, Jim, you know, she was pretty open. Um, despite the gospel upbringing, you know, she was a, a conversant with the popular music of the day. She loved it just yeah. as much as she loved the gospel stuff. Well, and there was a there was a sense of that you know, I can do anything I want with this I voice. I can do anything and I shouldn't be limited. And it has been said by some of her biographers that Sam Cooke instilled that in her. Mm. Well, uh, there's debate about the Columbia years. Her first major label, she signed to Columbia Records uh, by the great John Hammond, who would go on to sign Dylan. 
a lot of critics write off the Columbia years, and they say she is being put into a pop mold instead of finding her true self, her true voice, as she did later at Atlantic. I reject that. Mm. I think her her interests in music, her love of music, were always wide-ranging. She loved the Tin Pan Alley pop. Yeah. She loved the gospel. She I mean, she loved everything. Uh, and I think that, that, that to just say she didn't have any soul, what we becomes known as Lady Soul. You mentioned she's crowned the Queen of Soul here at the Regal Theater in Chicago in 1967, mm-hmm. right? Um, you know, but it's there from the beginning. Is that why you got in touch with me? I guess you must be running out of food. A lot of people just say Columbia was always steering her what to do. I don't think Aretha was ever easily steered. She loved Dinah Washington. In 1964, she puts out an album, Unforgettable, a tribute to Dinah Washington. Uh, no record company is telling her to do that. She said, I first heard Dinah was when I was a kid, mm-hmm. and, and when I loved it. And, and you know, a recurring thing we will see throughout her career, whoever she sings, whether it's opera or Dinah Washington or stealing R-E-S-P-E-C-T, a song she sings becomes hers. That's Soulville as sung by Aretha Franklin from her tribute album to Dinah Washington in 1964. You know, again, Jim, we're, we're sort of diving deep into this period of her life because I think it's the, the one that gets the shortest shrift. Nobody yep. really pays attention to Aretha in the Columbia years, even though she was a very high-profile artist at the time. A lot of people were saying, well, she was just recording the Barbara Streisand leftovers, you know, because no, no, Barbara no. Streisand was the big singer on Columbia mm-hmm. at the time. The, the rote... Uh, Aretha story is that nobody really knew what to do with Aretha at Columbia, and it wasn't until she got to Atlantic in 1967 that she really discovered what she a, wanted to do. I think it's Atlantic that tells yeah. that story. Yeah. Uh, she knew what she wanted to do. And, and, and this sort of uh, wide-ranging taste in the kinds of music that she liked and loved to sing, and that not only that she liked to sing, but that she had a real feel for uh, was was pretty wide, and it illustrated her depth as a singer. You know, there's another track from that Dinah Washington tribute album that I think illustrates her feel for the blues. Nobody knows the way I feel this morning. Mm. And a lot of people say, well, the Columbia Sessions were kind of gloppy, orkes- orchestral kind of things. And listen to this track and tell me there's anything gloppy or orchestral about it. Yeah. You've got Ernie Hayes swinging on his gospel organ. you got Gary Chester counterpunching on those drums. And at about the three-minute mark in this song, Aretha just feels it and just takes off. 
and there's a it'll send a chill up your spine. Uh, Aretha singing the blues is an amazing thing, and the one thing she doesn't lose throughout this period is that she bends every song to that gospel feeling. Mm-hmm. She never loses her touch with the church or the gospel. She always brings it to whatever she's singing. Nobody knows the way I feel this morning as interpreted by Aretha Franklin. Nobody knows. Nobody knows the way I feel this morning. I said nobody knows the way I feel this morning. Lady Soul, Aretha Franklin, nobody knows the way I feel this morning. I feel that way uh, often, Greg, in the morning. (laughs) One of the great voices in pop music history has left us, Aretha Franklin, dead at the age of 76. When we come back on Sound Opinions, we are going to go to the Atlantic years and the rest of Aretha Franklin's extraordinary career. That's in a minute on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX. Sound Opinions. I'm Jim DeRogatis here with Greg Cott, and this week we are remembering the life, legacy, and the incredible voice of Aretha Franklin. Um, you know, Greg, you got to get us into the Atlantic years. You're expert on Muscle Shoals and, and that whole era, Jerry Wexler. So this is what Aretha's known for, right? I mean, respect, think, those superstar hits. What 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 a trail! You yeah. know, it, it, for 18 months, alright, uh, she has... Uh, 10, top 10 singles, 1967 to 68. Yeah, I mean, she was dominating the pop charts uh, right around this time. And that's when most people think of Aretha Franklin beginning her career. But she'd already had like 10 records at Columbia <laughs> Records at this point. Yeah, yeah. And I do, we both hardly recommend checking them out because, uh, you know, you, you can find a lot of great stuff there. But seriously, it's the stuff in Atlantic that, uh, that people are, are so crazy about. And I think one of the reasons was that Jerry Wexler, who produced many of those sessions, uh, recognized in Aretha not only the specialness of her voice, but the importance of sitting her down at the piano. Mm-hmm. When you listen to those early gospel recordings that she did uh, from the, the gospel circuit when she was a teenager, it was Aretha sitting down at the piano and singing her heart out. You had better get religion. 
And our, that's what Jerry Wexler wanted in the recording studio. So he knew he wanted to take her to Muscle Shoals, Alabama. The Muscle Shoals rhythm section was, uh, was the best in, in popular music at the time. They were rolling out hit after hit uh, at that studio, working with uh, the Stax record label, working with all the key uh, Southern soul artists. We're talking about people like Wilson Pickett coming through that studio. We're talking about uh, artists like King Curtis on, on saxophone. Uh, we're talking about a rhythm section that everybody in the world was coming to work with eventually. Now I need a pound of fat back drums. Uh, people like the Rolling Stones and Paul Simon and Bob Seger would show up at those at those studios to try to get some of that feel into their music. So, you know, Wexler knew that that rhythm section was going to work really well with Aretha's voice. And he was right. Unfortunately, Aretha, uh, among other things, uh, was experiencing quite a bit of culture shock, finding herself in rural Alabama. From Detroit. I mean, here's a woman yeah. from Detroit and now New York. Uh, very sophisticated, you know, New York City, surrounded by a multicultural environment and uh, an urban environment. And now she's in rural Alabama. And, and frankly, you know, I talked to her once and she said, yeah, I was a little freaked out, you know. Yeah. Well, plus she hated to fly. Yeah. There was so a lot taken, of things. <laughs> she's taken the bus from New York to Alabama. There's a lot of things about this that weren't right from Aretha's perspective. But... They got one great song out of it, and I think what they established there is this is what you need to sound like. Once she got behind that microphone, once she sat down at that piano with that rhythm section all around her, uh, you know, as I said, King Curtis was there. You had Willie Bridges on baritone sax. You had Spooner Oldham on Wurlitzer electric piano, Chips Moman and Jimmy Johnson on guitar, Roger Hawkins on drums, one of the greatest mm -hmm. drummers of all time. And Aretha's sitting down in the middle of this room with these guys playing a song called I Never Loved a Man the Way I Love You. That is the song and the sound that established Aretha Franklin in 1967 and 1967 onward. That is the sound that most people remember Aretha by. Here's a little bit of I Never Loved a Man the Way I Love You, her debut single from Atlantic Records in 1967. So that is I Never Loved a Man the Way I Love You. It's a song written by Ronnie Shannon. You notice uh, Aretha's piano in tandem with Spooner Oldham on the electric piano. So Spooner was initially hired to play piano on that session. Mm -hmm. They realized, no, Aretha's going to play yeah, that yeah, piano. Yeah, I'm going to play, yeah. So he moved over to, to, to the Wurlitzer, and, and that gave it that uh, intriguing counterpoint sound. The key there 
is the counterpoint. You know, her voice against that keyboard, that against that piano, uh, made that gospel sound. It's a call and response. It goes all the way back to her. It's in her DNA mm-hmm. as a gospel singer to have that as part of her vocabulary. Greg, you're talking about those incredible Muscle Shoals musicians, what they brought to working with Aretha Franklin. We talked to the great Spooner Oldham in 2015. He remembered Aretha. Man, I bought one of her Columbia albums, I think. Sort of a cocktail kind of music. It didn't move me, you know. I'm sure it didn't move her that much, probably. (laughs) What is romance without the one you love? It's heartbreaking misery without the one you love. So I'm thinking, well, this is going to be interesting. Uh, see what we can come up with. Well, day one, song one, I Never Loved a Man popped out of the shoot to do, this is what we're going to do first. And we were all just sort of scratching our heads. What are we going to do with this song? Uh, we couldn't find uh, the right way to go with it. So I just sat there a minute and meditated reaching for something uh, to work with in my head and I just sort of noodling that little phrase. I think Dan Penn and Chip Moman who were in the building simultaneously said, Spooner's got it, Spooner's got it. So then uh, the players looked around at me and listened. Then they jumped in with me and we started playing it. But that's it's sort of like a, a desperation move on my part. I wanted to be a part of something there, you know. But after that, everything else sort of flew really easily, you know. three albums with her, Atlantic Records. There was a lot of hits came out of all that stuff. Yeah, you played on uh, Chain of Fools and uh, Respect, right? I mean, that was uh, was some big records for Aretha Franklin. What kind of a person was she to work with in the studio? She was just a treat. She was no problem. She was always good-natured, and uh, hopefully she found her home there for a minute with this band and this studio, you know. People get Uh, you know, you mentioned her dominance of, of the charts at, at this point in time, and, it, and it, it really is extraordinary what was going on, you know, between uh, the, the hits that she was recording there. And then it's important to note not only her voice and her piano playing in, in, in constructing those hits, but the uh, relationship she had with her backing singers, specifically her sisters, Carolyn and Irma. Yeah, uh, yeah. Those voices were very important parts of those records as well. I mean, this goes back to her days at New Bethel. You mentioned respect. This that also uh, showed up on that first uh, yeah. Atlantic well, record. Well, I'm, I'm laughing because I'm flashing on her sisters behind her. Yeah, going soccer to me, soccer to me, soccer to me. I love that. You mentioned that she kind of stole that song from Otis Redding, and Otis was like, man, she stole it from me. Man, she owns it now. And that 
happened with everyone she covered. Yeah. You know, um, uh, a cover is is a slighting term. She was one of the great American songbook interpreters. You know, Aretha's a civil rights uh, advocate, uh, proponent. She sings at Dr. Martin Luther King's funeral. Uh, you know, and she was a women's rights activist at a time long before that was key. I think also, uh, you know, You Make Me Feel Like a Natural Woman. Mm. It's one of those string of hits in 1967 uh, that's that's part of the Atlantic barrage of 10 top 10s. Uh, so Carol King had written mm. this song, right? Yeah. You know, a, a, a brill-building uh, white uh, singer-songwriter, Jerry Wexler, said, there's all these songs about natural men. Mm. Give me something about a natural woman, right? Um, there's a really moving moment in 2015 at the Kennedy Center Honors where uh, Carol King is being honored, and she did not know Aretha would come out and sing this song. Mm-hmm. And uh, I recall vividly on television at the time, and I went back and, and double-checked it on YouTube, <laughs> right? You know, the tears in President Obama's eyes right. and in Carol King's eyes. It's extraordinary. You know, you make me feel like a natural woman, and, and Aretha just delivers it, uh, proving, you know, the voice was with her well uh, past her prime as a recording artist. Here's that song, You Make Me Feel Like a Natural Woman on Sound Opinions. Looking out on the morning rain I used to feel so uninspired And when I knew I had to face another day Lord, it made me feel so tired Make me feel like a natural woman, and I'm not referring to you, Jim. Thank I'm, you. I'm referring you, to Aretha Franklin's yes. version of Carol King's song, and it's wonderful that it's a woman artist, you know, performing another female artist's song in such definitive style. You know, a lot of people think, oh, Jerry Wexler made Aretha, or John Hammond discovered Aretha. Yeah. No, Aretha made Aretha. Right. And 
what's important to note is she had a lot of control about how she wanted to sound and who she would record with, what kind of songs she would sing. And also, she was a great writer in her own right. She, she composed songs like Think and Rocksteady and Spirit in the Dark. Getting the spirit in the dark. I'm getting the spirit in the dark. Keep on moving. Oh, you've been grooving. Just getting the spirit. And her sister Carolyn wrote some great songs for her as well, you know. Uh, Ain't No Way, and Angel. These are these are Carolyn Franklin songs. Uh, so she was very much in charge of her career. Uh, you, you know, you mentioned singing at King's funeral, uh, Precious Lord, that definitive reading. What other singer, you know, could have been there doing that at that moment? That was a singer that everybody needed at that time. You know, first African-American woman to appear on the cover of Time magazine mm-hmm. uh, a couple of weeks after King's funeral. I collaborated with Ray Charles, covered Simon and Garfunkel and the Beatles to the point where the, the Beatles and Simon and Garfunkel are going, oh boy. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what we sh- wish we wish we could sound no, like that. That, that, you know? that, that version of Bridge Over Troubled Water is, yeah. is extraordinary. So, so she wasn't incredibly outspoken of, on political causes in her interviews. I think she was letting the music speak for itself. You know, there's no oh, yeah. way to hear, think, and respect and not, not hear them as uh, anthems of female empowerment. And I, I think she kind of thought, what else I got to say? Yeah. I just said that. You know, y- you talk about her always being in control. There was a fine New Yorker profile a while back where uh, the, the writer got a lot of access, and she's sitting there in the dressing room uh, with stacks and stacks of $100 bills. Hmm. She would not perform unless she was paid in cash. This is a story we've heard so many times. It's, you know, Chuck Berry, have to have it in cash on the barrelhead or I don't play. It, it's a legacy of that Chitlin circuit disrespect for these artists. Um, you know, after she leaves Atlantic, uh, you know, I guess the third big collaborator, mentor, we could say, person who took advantage of her was Clive Davis. Mm. Arista Records, okay? Uh, and early on there, you know, uh, the Blues Brothers movie happens, and, and, and that's wonderful, and a new generation is introduced to her with a, to that wise-cracking waitress, mm-hmm. you know, and her wonderful performance, and okay. I'm less convinced about, like, Freeway of Love, you know, or... or who's zooming who? Didn't uh, you, weren't, you weren't a fan? I that? wasn't a fan, <laughs> but I think, um, you know, the moment uh, in, in the let's call the last third of her career that she owns, you know, uh, at the Grammy Awards in 1998. The notoriously, people say Aretha was a diva. Mm. A worse diva was Luciano Pavarotti, mm-hmm. okay? He is supposed to perform at the Grammys. At the last minute, I don't know, he's got a tickle in his throat. He says no, all right? And Aretha Franklin steps in 
with Nessun Dorma. Uh, None Shall Sleep is the English translation of Puccini's famous aria. The mezzo-soprano that, uh, that Aretha can deliver in, in, in uh, you know, this genre, which is about, you know, according to most people, 180 degrees from mm-hmm. what she does. So I'm sitting at the Sun-Times. I'm reviewing the Grammys on television, on Deadline, my least favorite task as a daily newspaper critic. I don't know about you. Mm-hmm. Um, with Laura Emmerich, who would go on to be one of the publicists for the Civic Opera in Chicago. She knows opera. I don't know nothing, right? And we both have tears in our eyes. Mm-hmm. Can't forget Nessun Dorma by Aretha. Greg, I don't know how you top Nessun Dorma. What, what, what would you go to from Aretha's later years? Well, I think uh, there is a great gospel record from her uh, uh, middle years, uh, so to speak. Um, we're going to talk in depth about um, her greatest gospel album, Amazing Grace, from 1972 in the next segment. And, and she did a reprise of it, uh, so to speak, in 1987, a record called One Lord, One Faith, One Baptism. And really, another gospel masterpiece. It's uh, it's easily the most intense and heartfelt set of performances from Aretha's last three decades, at least on record. Mm. Um, and there are some windy speeches and introductions on that record. <laughs> but when the when she gets to the singing parts, I mean, it's it's she is in full voice. She she's in her element in a church in front of that congregation, singing uh, those gospel songs that she started singing when she was five years old. So it's an amazing recording of mid-period Aretha that I think everybody should, should seek out. When we come back, we're going to talk about the most successful album of Aretha Franklin's career, the double album Amazing Grace. That's in a minute on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX.
Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Cott with Jim DeRigatis, and today we've been talking about the life of Aretha Franklin, who is dead at the age of 76. Uh, we want to end our conversation about Franklin by talking about her most commercially successful album, uh, Amazing Grace, which came out in 1972. Now, this was her return to gospel music, although, you know, she would say she never left gospel music. She never music. left the She church. always brought gospel into everything she did, but this was a hardcore gospel record. Uh, a double album recorded live in Watts, Los Angeles. And in 2012, we spoke with writer Aaron Cohen, who wrote a book about this particular record, the making of this record, in the 33 and a third book series. We're going to revisit that interview, and we're going to start out with why Aaron Cohen felt this album was among Aretha's very best. I've always loved Aretha's voice, and I felt that this album is her at her artistic peak. Uh, her voice is at its strongest. Her range is at its strongest. It is incredible material. The album has a very important historic role in the way it transformed gospel. And it is Aretha Franklin's biggest selling album, too. That's surprising, even uh, above and beyond all the hits and the hit collections. Yes, it was certified double platinum in the early 1990s. None of her other albums have been certified double platinum, two million sales. Mm. We know her singles. We know Respect, Think, Chain of Fools. But as far as albums go, this is her biggest selling album which is interesting because there were no hit singles from mm -hmm. the album. Yeah, you just said it's uh, your favorite album of hers, which is pretty bold stuff. What is it about this record that for you makes it definitive Aretha? She was able to do what she wanted on this album. She was not confined to having to do a two or three minute hit single, as wonderful as those singles are, as much as we love, respect, and think. If she wanted to sing for 12 minutes, she could sing for 12 minutes. If she wanted to perform contemporary pop material she could and she did if she wanted to perform spirituals the gospel songs she grew up with she could and she did the range on this album is incredible and she had her best band she had the wonderful cornell dupree on guitar chuck rainey on bass bernard pretty purdy on drums mm. and most importantly she had the reverend james cleveland and his choir Reverend James Cleveland was as important to gospel music as Aretha is to soul R&B. He transformed the way gospel sounds. He transformed it into a choir phenomenon. He could make a choir move with the agility of a great small group, like the great small group that Aretha brought to the church. There's also a great back and forth between her and the congregation that you can hear and feel throughout the album. It is a live recording. It was recorded in mid-January of 1972 at the New Temple Missionary Baptist Church in Watts, Los Angeles. Give us some context here. I mean, Aretha is the biggest female performer in R&B and pop, really, of that era, right? Yes, I cannot think of a bigger female singer on the planet at that time. She goes into a church in Watts. Four she, years after the riots. Yeah. And she shows up with her band, with the recording company, Atlantic, with Jerry Wexler. Arif Martin is in the truck. She had Sidney Pollack filming it. When you look at the film footage of the album, and I was able to see all this raw footage of this film, 
uh, Mick Jagger and Charlie Watts were there. Mm-hmm. And uh, as we know, uh, the Rolling Stones were putting the mixes on Exile on Main Street, which was a double album and also contained really clear gospel influences. Shine too. a light, yeah. Shine a light. And Billy Preston, who was a James Cleveland protege, mm-hmm. was on Exile on Main Street. So I think that uh, influence on Amazing Grace on rock albums was certainly clear as well. Aaron, do you see Aretha Franklin's return to gospel music on this classic album having an enduring influence? I mean, we hear uh, people kind of trying to bring in a little gospel once in a while in the pop and rock and even hip-hop realms, but not having the the deep connection to the roots. Well, I certainly do uh, see it having an influence, particularly in contemporary gospel music. One of the reasons why this album has been so influential on gospel is because of the format of a really great, really flexible choir with a star singer has become the norm in gospel music today. terms of her own influence on gospel singers, this Amazing Grace album is the one that they listen to of hers. I would like to point out that one of the reasons why I wanted to write this book was because I felt that this album's, even though it's a huge seller, hugely influential on gospel, in some ways it's been kind of underappreciated in the mainstream media. We all remember in 2008, Rolling Stone magazine put Aretha Franklin on the cover as the great singer of the rock era. I agree entirely. But in the article that accompanied that cover story, this album is not mentioned once. Mm. That's a great point. And I think gospel has been sort of ghettoized when it comes to the pop and rock spectrum. That's why I think it's so fascinating that this major pop performer, a person who was in the pop charts as often as she was during that period, made this hardcore gospel album. I mean, as you said, it ended up being her bestseller, but it clearly was not done for commercial reasons. No, it wasn't. However, I do not believe that Jerry Wexler of Atlantic Records would do anything that was uncommercial. There was a sort of trend towards gospel crossover success. We had Oh Happy Day, the hit single from the Hawkins Singers. Mm -hmm. We had even some rock songs, hippie rock songs that had become gospel influenced. Put Uh, your hand in the hand of the man. (laughs) That's one. (laughs) Well, in 72, yeah, we're not that far removed from Jesus Christ Superstar and Godspell, the musical. Right. So that applies to the Staples Singers and and Mavis Staples in particular. I I wrote a book about them, and their biggest commercial success was during this time was so-called message records that had sort of an underlying gospel feel to them. Especially with R&B and black music at that time, there was a sense of that gospel music is the real black music, that R&B, jazz, rock and roll, all of which had African-American sources, had become diluted 
whereas the ethnomusicologists felt that gospel music was not diluted. Well, and Aaron, is is Aretha posing on the cover in that incredible African dress and headdress? Is that part of it as well? I believe it is. And I think it was a real bold statement for Aretha Franklin to do that. When I was interviewing people from the book who were part of Aretha's inner circle, I talked to the poet Nikki Giovanni, who bought her clothes at the same shop as Aretha. And I sort of asked her, well, how do you feel that Aretha Franklin fit into the black aesthetic at that time. And Nikki Giovanni cut me off quickly and said, Aretha was the black aesthetic. Wow, Uh, Mm. that's a heavy statement. She even wrote an essay, I believe, when she was around 19, justifying her move over to pop music, saying, you know, this is still part, I'm still part and parcel with the civil rights movement here. We're just bringing our message into a different forum. It's really incredible, yes. When Aretha Franklin was very young, in 1961, she was 19, She wrote an article for the New York Amsterdam News, the African-American newspaper, where she says, point one, my crossing over from gospel music to pop is not disrespecting the Lord in any way. And then she puts it in the context of the burgeoning civil rights movement Mm -hmm. in a really interesting way at a really young age. So 10, 11 years later, when she records this album, it seemed like the world of that sort of thinking was catching up to what she was writing 10, 11 years earlier. You mentioned that she, as a teen, was a fully formed singer in many ways, you know, uh, really deep, heavy stuff that she was performing with an adult perspective or, or a gravity in her voice. You know, there's a fountain filled with blood. I've heard some of this stuff, and it's pretty heavy stuff. different about her now as a mature artist in her early 30s recording this album? What was different about the vocal style, the approach to these songs that she'd really lived with her entire life? Well, yes. I mean, those early songs are are frightening when you listen to them today. When she was at Columbia Records and was going through a process of basically trying to be a jazz singer, and now I'm saying this as an editor at Downbeat, but I think that her post-teenage years singing jazz really helped her with phrasing, it helped her with sculpting sounds, it helped her with improvisation, in terms of drawing things out and having her voice be able to carry for a longer term. I mean, when she was a, a young girl singing, she wouldn't sing for as long as she sings on these two nights. And I think the sense of control, the sense of discipline that comes with being a jazz singer really helped. Well, the title song alone, Amazing Grace, right, is, uh, what, about 11 minutes on this uh, Yes, and I'm sure it was even longer uh, (laughs) at the actual church. So, Mm -hmm. um, you know, it really takes some real heavy training to be able to carry that out.
Where did she go from here, Aaron? After Amazing Grace comes out, she makes this big return to the church, and it is a successful uh, best-selling album in, in her catalog, uh, as you said it was. Where did she go next? Well, it's interesting. After that, she recorded with Quincy Jones. Hey Now Hey, The Other Side of the Sky. So she sort of broke away from the Jerry Wexler group mm-hmm. and recorded this. Then she went back, recorded such hits as Until You Come Back to Me, That's What I'm mm-hmm. Going to Do. And so she basically went back to being a soul star again and didn't really say that much in interviews about the album. But it really was very meaningful for her, too, because she would still perform songs from it. And then in the 1980s, she recorded another gospel album, One Faith, One Lord, One Baptism, which I don't believe was a successful an album. Mm. But she certainly uh, went back on her path. But, but for all intents and purposes, Amazing Grace stands as a singular peak it in this does. in this incredible career. Yeah. I like I say I don't believe she recorded anything nearly as great afterwards or anything as great before. That was Aaron Cohen, who wrote about Aretha Franklin's Amazing Grace album for the 33 and a Third book series. We spoke to him in 2012. Um, you know, Greg, as I was going over, the 42 studio albums, mm-hmm. 42 in Aretha's uh, career. Uh, that's not counting live albums and compilation albums. And, you know, I, I would stick with Amazing Grace as the one album to buy uh, if you're looking for the first one, mm-hmm. right? Because beginning to end, it is so brilliant. Now, of course, you have your choice of all the singles collections, and you need them from Columbia, from uh, Atlantic, even some of the Arista Records uh, later stuff. You know, she worked with Lauren Hill, you know? I think what we have to remember is this is, again, one of the great interpretive voices uh, of popular music ever, period. I think it's also important to note what an amazing, um, you know, icon in, in, in America, but also specifically the African-American community. Um, you know, the way she was able to represent that community and, and, and bring it forward uh, as a standard bearer. You know, this, the, the whole idea of, of, of American history, or especially African-American history as pre-Aretha and post-Aretha, mm-hmm. makes a lot of sense. remember Aretha, what she stood for. We want to know what you think of the great Aretha Franklin. Give us a call. Leave a message on our hotline, 888-859-1800, or connect with us on Facebook or Twitter. Sound Opinions is produced by Brendan Banisak, Alex Claiborne, Iona Contreras, Andrew Gill, and our intern, Hannah Edgar. Think I walk out in the rain Called you time, time again On Sound Opinions, everyone's a critic. So now it's time to hear what you have to say. New Messages
Hi, I really enjoyed the uh, Roxy Music show last night, and I wanted to mention how it influenced me. One of the things that it really influenced me is it taught me how to read liner notes and follow other artists. Manzanera and Eno went on to play with lots of different people. 801, John Cale solo albums, a lot of really eccentric English artists. So I would read those connections and buy those albums. And some of the music was good and some of it wasn't, but it was kind of fun. And it was really the only way you could find new music back then. And I still think there's something of a sentimental charm to it. Hi guys, this is Nancy from Minneapolis. Just calling to let you know, I was going to school in England at that time, and it blew me out of the water. It was insane. Got to see them in concert multiple times over there and over here, not to mention the reboot. Anyway, this was so stunning. I just adored it. You mentioned a couple of times other bands that were influenced by them that are in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, and the fact that they're not is an absolute crime. Very happy to hear this. I listen to you all the time, but you picked my favorite album by my favorite band of all time. Thanks. Hi, Tom Forrest, Park, Illinois. I was an undergrad at Illinois State University, hungover on a Saturday morning, doing a weekly trip to Apple Tree Records, and I heard the first side of Roxy Music's first album. Uh, was blown away, but this is like reinventing everything. Instantly bought the album, brought it home, had this amazing new discovery, quickly picked up the rest of the records within a week. It's a wonderful, wonderful experience, and thank you for a, a great recap on having Phil Manzanera on the show. Hey, this is Lisa. I live here in Austin, Texas, and just listened to the story about Roxy Music. Boy, that brought back memories. I had just moved from Austin, Texas to Denver, Colorado um, at the time Avalon came out. My husband and I used to visit friends up in the mountains, and it just knocked our world apart. Now the party's over. I'm so tired. Then I see you coming out of Ah, this is electric and oceans rushing through my body. What an incredible sound message and feeling. There was nothing else like it. After I heard Avalon, I went back and bought the original album. Like many of the best musicians, they don't have that recipe for, um, for commercial success sometimes, and that's unfortunate. So, thank you for playing all this. I think they've had phenomenal influence. They weren't afraid to do it all. Loved it. I don't know. No more messages.
To give us your opinions on Sound Opinions, call our hotline, 888-859-1800. We'll be back next week with more Sound Opinions, produced by WBEZ Chicago and distributed by PRX. Hey.